Happy Friday, and congratulations on making it through another week here at the Airport Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest disaster movie ever made, the 1970 Universal Pictures movie, Airport. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm host number two, Mark Cerulli of CovertOps.tv, and uh, today in the... uh in, in one of the last trips in the cockpit, we have a very distinguished guest, a producer and production manager, Daniel Hank. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. This is uh, ex- exciting. For uh, uh, technically a behind the, behind the scenes, even though this isn't our last episode, this is the last one we're taping. So it's it's a very exciting. We're gonna uh, what, what do you do? Break a bottle of champagne, or I don't know what <laughs> happens with the last the last moment. We're gonna have a wrap party someday. Uh, although it's probably gonna just involve Tylenol and. <laughs> Uh, but we are we had a it's been a really good run for us and uh, this is a great a great minute and uh, thanks for so much for being on the show where we've been talking a lot about the uh, uh, the technical and artistic sides and stuff and uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about the uh, the practical side of a lot of this stuff uh, Dan you're a uh, you're a producer and you've seen uh, this from a budgetary angle trying to figure out when somebody brings in a script and says here we're gonna make we're gonna make a movie and uh, how much is all this gonna cost and where are we going to buy this stuff? How 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 far in advance would you like uh, on a feature film like this? How far in advance would you get a heads up that you got to start getting numbers on things like this? Well, generally speaking, pretty early in the process because nobody will agree to green lighting a picture until they really know what it's going to cost, and you can't entirely decide and conclude on what it's going to cost until you know where you want to make it. Uh, Back in the 70s or 60s when this picture was made, pretty much everything was made in California uh, unless you had a real reason and need to go elsewhere. Uh, and, of course, in this, they were chasing snow. So I'm sure they looked at a bunch of different places where they could film an airport, get control of an airport, and uh, you know have the weather on your side in the winter. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that something like, like snow is one of those things that you, when it comes up as you're reading through the script, you kind of circle it and, and put a question mark next to it and say, this could go anywhere. You could probably vary the price of it by about 30% of the budget, I would think, in terms of how long you're going to be sitting there waiting for the sky to open up. Are, are there are there other things besides snow? I would think other types of weather that you'd be waiting for might delay a production. Well, I'm sure they didn't decide to make this picture in the summers. You'd have to go to you know the southern hemisphere to get snow. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I, I, I produced a film a few years ago called Beethoven's Christmas Adventure, which was about the dog, not the composer. Right. And as it, the title might in, in, uh, in, in claim, the, uh, it took place at Christmas time. And the whole picture was all full of snow festivals and blizzards and snow fests and all this. And, you know, in this day and age, people don't think first to shoot in California. They think to shoot in a place where they can get a production tax rebate on the picture to help defray the cost. So the go-to place for this particular studio, which I think was also universal, uh, coincidentally, was to go to Georgia uh, and to shoot it in, uh, in, in February, March in Georgia. And it's like, there's no snow in February and March in Georgia. <laughs> we can make snow till we're blue in the face and it will melt as soon as it comes out of the snow machine. Uh, how about we go to a place where there's permafrost? So, uh, I persuaded them to take the picture up to Winnipeg, Canada, where it's like <laughs> minus 20 all the time and the snow never melts. Wow. 
I mean, and that's more of a nowadays thing. I don't know how often they would go that far away on location in these shoots. I mean, it used to be a big deal if they went to Utah to go shoot a Western. But uh, I guess with with air traffic and air, air travel and stuff like that, it's a little bit easier to move a production far north and stuff like that. Well, back in those days, you know, even now there's no crew really to speak of in Minneapolis where they filmed the uh, the exteriors of this uh, this this movie. Uh, so I'm sure they brought everybody from California, which was very, very expensive. It's still very, very expensive to bring everybody or even a good chunk of people to a location that's, you know, not where they live. Yeah. Well, I, I understand that you are one, one of our many audience members who actually listen to our show and, uh, and have been following along as, uh, since the, the early days of, of being in this thing. It's nice to know somebody in, in the world of, in the entertainment industry is actually listening to this show. And you were you have been a long time airport fan. Do you remember the first time you saw airport? Did you see it in a movie theater or did you? Uh... No, I don't remember seeing it in a movie theater. I probably remember seeing it on television, uh, you know, syndicated channel 11 local stuff, uh, probably in the in the early 70s. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with the with the jargon and the and the and the the intensity and the and the and the tension they they so expertly crafted back then, which now of course pales in comparison to, you know, what they do nowadays. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's still, it, even, it, even back in the day, and there, there are a couple of weird things like the, uh, the doctor that has to announce to everybody that his patient is pregnant in front of a crowd of people. But uh, for mo- for the most part, everything we've heard, at least on the aircraft side, uh, it's very realistic. It's very, very accurate. And uh, I think it kind of set a standard that uh, other people have to follow uh, that, you know, nowadays, you can't get away with making things up because there's too many people in the know uh, in those in those particular industries, you know, and still managing to get, uh, you know, Dean Martin managed to take a, a flight instruction to get to, to to be accurate on this thing. It's quite a quite a, an astonishing performance. The minute we're looking at right now, minute 135 is finishing up the la- we're seeing the last of, of poor Gwen, who's got uh, apparently arterial bleeding out of her eye. They've wrapped her eyeball several times and she still seems to have like three pints of blood dripping down her face we're waving goodbye to her and and uh poor old uh, uh sarah demarest is watching her uh her husband and her marriage walk out the door as as he's he's a poli- oblivious that yeah. uh, that she's standing yeah. there yeah. in her yeah. in her mink in her mink coat yeah. seems like all the women in this picture wear mink coats yeah and we and we just had one fragmentary view of ruth the uh the, the fourth uh, stewardess is she 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 needed to get her last shot in the picture so she jumped in and had her picture and got to walk away uh, through there that was that's the end for the for the stewardess crew we lose the rest of the crew there and uh where dr compagno is is off to doing uh guest shots on barnaby jones and canon and well they're the quinn martin productions so we'll we'll see him soon on a mystery mo- you know mystery movie uh, of the week can we, can we talk one more minute about uh, about wardrobe and stuff sure, sure. because uh, i i thought it was kind of unique and interesting just and and you look at continuity things and like the, the first shot in this minute is, you know, them wheeling her away and the, and the scene with the doctor and then, uh, you know, and Vern's going with her to the hospital and, you know, he's just in his uniform. And, you know, the minute previous to this, there's all the other people, you know, the the the, the scene of the, all the crowd. Oh, my goodness. They're all coming off the airplane. And you have people in uniforms from other airlines that don't exist anymore, like QWA, Northwest. That yeah. that was cool. Yeah. Uh, again, the women, all the women in the mink coats, and you know, then then the next scene, you know, they're in the hangar, and you know, Vern got his coat back because he's got his overcoat on now with uh, with what's his name, the other pilot. Well, I don't know. actually, actually, that's not Vern. That's uh, 
That's Gary Collins with uh with Barry Nelson. So uh, <laughs> yes, Gary Collins reveling in be- <laughs> finally being out. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's he's the, uh, the the engineer. The cockpits, so. Yeah, and he still doesn't get a line. He just they give they give he the gets line to Barry. Smile. Yeah, he gets the nod and smile and things and and they're all standing <laughs> around and uh and good old uh, Joe Petroni in his TWA mm-hmm. outfit looking uh, looking smart and he, and of course uh uh, Joe got finally got his box of cigars that Mel promised him. Which has got to be the the was it twelve hours between the the bet and the payoff? Yeah. Where so did you get? You get I, I they must have sold the cigars in the airport. Yeah, I, would, yeah. I think there must be like a duty free shop is now missing a box. So, um, <laughs> and uh, there's probably like the the mayor of St. Paul and all the all the people that they promised would be in the movie. They told them to come out one day and right. they'd shoot him in the hangar. But did we ever see Petroni smoke a cigar? We see him chomp on them. And chew them and be the tough guy like he's in a you know the dirty dozen or something like that. But I don't know that we ever see him smoke the cigar. Um, I, yeah, he I certainly think, everybody else smokes in the picture. I think the one time that we saw him smoking was when he was explaining what would happen if the if the bomb blew up in uh, oh with the model it, with the model. And oh yeah, kinda, yeah, yeah. He's kind of rolling and trying to keep yeah trying to keep the ash. Well, actually, it's in uh, it's in Mel's office. He's in Mel's office, and okay. they've got the little cutaway seven oh seven. So he's he's rolling it through there. But yeah, he. Uh, I think just most of the time he just ate his cigars, <laughs> or, or he threw them over his shoulder when he was done. You know, that, that's kind of where where he went with it. And, well, uh, well, it's interesting because this this was a G a rated movie. Oh yeah. And and you know back then nobody cared how much you smoked or chomped. Yeah. And you know the oh. amount of blood on her bandage you know was limited. Yeah. Uh, even now, as they rate movies, you can only have so much blood, so many curse words, all yeah. that to get whatever rating you're getting. And then on television, hardly anybody wants to see you smoke or even pretend to smoke yeah. on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for AMC for a number of years. And, you know, when we worked on Mad Men, it was period correct. But he had to get a zillion people to sign off on it to say, all right, if everybody smoked in the 60s, we're going to agree to do this because it's realistic. But any project I've worked on since takes a, an act of Congress to get people to agree to uh to allow to show smoking on television nowadays even if it's period correct you work for disney or abc or any of those guys they are they don't care if it's correct just don't show that part of the correctness is there uh is what they'll tell you wow yeah i mean mm. considering that one of the i mean one of don's uh sponsors was uh lucky strike was one of his accounts that made it a little bit awkward trying to trying to show it on screen <laughs> i would think <laughs> Uh, the, the the new movie Hidden Figures, which is about the uh, Mercury era in uh, in NASA, that those are smoke free rooms, pretty much in the uh, Mission Control and stuff like that. And it's like that's not how it was. Everybody had a uh, you know everybody had a an ashtray on in front of them at their console. Sure. So, but I guess like it doesn't doesn't play. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which studio that was. Yeah, it's it's just not it's not kosher. And apparently, you could get a G rating even if you were. Uh, openly discussing abortion and where to where to go to where to go in sweden in, in a movie back oh, in 1970 right. so that was a kind of a surprise one last thing on the, on the on the wardrobe stuff is back then even i mean you see the stuff going back to the 20s everybody wears a hat yeah. even in the 60s everybody's wearing a hat yeah. even the yeah. guy measuring the hole yeah <laughs> in the side of the plane he's wearing a hat yeah that's gone it's the size it's the size of the hole of the plane and he's wearing a hat. Yeah, everybody's dressed like Jack Ruby, and I mean, <laughs> we think that the guy that, that they'd have a technician, at least he'd have on like a baseball cap or something like that. But he does look like a 
He looks like he should have a, a, a machine gun and a violin case. He's dressed like a, a 40s gangster. Uh, yeah, they're, they're just, uh, and, you know, th- at the time, I mean, this is, this is a, a lost world. I mean, we're looking at modern jets and things like that, but the hats and everything, as we've, we've discussed earlier episodes, the hats really determined who you were in society. Like, you know, things like whether you're wearing a fedora or a trilby or whether you had the, the front of the cap uh, bent at a certain angle. And I mean, all that meant something as a, you know, just to show where you were in your income level or, or, you know, how you, how you were fixed for a job. We saw that with uh, Dio Guerrero's character. He had rather a, a shapeless hat just to indicate that he was kind of uh, on the outs. And, uh, you know, all these guys look like they, they just pulled their brand new Stetsons out of a, uh, you know, out of a hat box. But great looking guys though. I mean, Bert knows how, boy, you could put a, you know, you, you could just get through a raincoat on that guy and he'd look fantastic. It just right down, right down to this last, these last scenes here. He's got that great, this is his, I think this is his third jacket. Was it, he was wearing that heavy, uh, stained, uh, snowsuit that he was wearing before that he kind of mm-hmm. threw over his, uh, his tuxedo, and then he switched out to the other suit. And this is now a third fur trim jacket. Again, uh, Jean Seberg with her Edith Head mini skirt snowsuit, which <laughs> just doesn't look very practical, but it looks nice on her. So. I'm, I'm just, I keep seeing this thing, and I know that they rented, they rented that 707 from uh, Flying Tigers, and I just, I wish I could find out who the people were that rented it from Flying Tigers and how they explained to them and the insurance company that they were going to put that plane, that 144-foot-long plane, into a skid on a runway and film it several times just to make sure they got the they got the picture. I, that's eight million dollars worth of aircraft, and I I can't imagine how how the you know be, being a producer on this job that I don't think there's enough Maylocks in the world to not worry about you know, this was worth a bit more than the production. I mean, it's actually equal well, to the production. I don't know that you I don't know that you could do that today. The the studios are all extremely safety conscious and you'd have to like show them a way to do this with like draining the fuel from the plane and you you do it all CGI now because any mm-hmm. any practical way to do it would be kind of impractical. Uh, yeah. If you were to do it today uh, under the current safety regulations. Yeah. I, I, the only thing I could think of that comes close to this is uh, when they made Lost and they actually bought a, you know, a, a, an L-1011 that had been just stuck out in the desert. It had been mothballed. And they bought chunks of an L-1011 and shipped it all out on a on a boat to uh, Hawaii and then decorated the set with big pieces of the fuselage. Yeah, I actually, knew, I actually know the production designer on that. And he told me that story. And. He's, you know, you've probably seen pictures of these uh, airplane graveyards out in the Mojave that have just hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of planes all parked wingtip to wingtip that have just have no more useful life to them. Yeah, I think he told me it cost a hundred thousand dollars to buy the L ten eleven, and then there the big trick was how do you get it from the Mojave Desert to Hawaii? So they said, all right, can we make it flyable and then fly it there? And the and the answer was no. There was just too much of it was stripped out of it already to make it flyable. And then so they they cut it up, they put it on a boat, they shipped it by by freighter to Hawaii. It took a couple of weeks. And I think he told me it cost something like 350,000 to ship it to Hawaii, not including the $100,000 cost to buy it. Wow. And then of course they just abandoned it there. They I'm not sure what they ended up doing with it at the end of the series. Uh, I think the idea was to sink it somewhere and make an artificial reef, although they may yeah. not have done that. Yeah, or you cut it into one-foot squares and sell it to fans, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
a lot of this stuff now would I would imagine would just be done with CGI and you wouldn't really worry about you know that that picture that we're back at second uh, eleven that would just be either a glass painting or just a, more likely a an After Effects mat on top of a, a couple of people. It's just it's just amazing seeing this as a practical you know a, a practical prop that they actually you know they painted the cheat line they put in the the logo and uh, you know basically re redid a a 707 just for just for the purposes of this movie and they do it again in uh in 77 and 70 75 77 and, and the concord well you would still do it for if you were making that movie today you would still do something like that to have the interaction with the plane that didn't involve the plane doing a stunt because it's it's always more real to have something real to interact with yeah. Uh, even if you were going to have this plane do a stunt and you were going to do it in CGI, the first thing you would do is take the pl- the actual plane and photograph it so it could be modeled in the computer to create the CGI. And rather than creating it from just imagination or air, yeah. that is that makes the best the best most believable effects is use elements. Uh, of, re- of reality. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wreck this minute right at the moment. The uh, it, it, the insert where the Jack Ruby guy is you know has his little uh, uh, ruler out and he's measuring the the hole. Obviously an inset, but also obvious is that it's the inside of a a Universal Studio uh, uh, because if you look at the second twenty is where the insert is. If you look back at uh, second ten, you can see that it's not the same roof. It's a whole different lighting system, and you're talking about inside the plane or inside oh, no. the hangar. It's inside when you're yeah when you're inside the hangar at second ten, you can you can see the roof is metal, and then if you go back to the uh, the picture of the the guy measuring inside, the roof changes and it's a wooden ceiling. It has wooden. That would that would be the roof of a soundstage. Yeah, that that's what that's what it is. It's a it's a soundstage, <laughs> but it's it's just a five second and, scene. And I'm sure that piece with the uh, with the guy measuring the hole. Is just a flat that's yeah, maybe right. 15 feet wide, and they and they and they built this thing with the turned out metal. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I thought that was the coolest shot ever. Saying, "Wow, that's what an airplane looks like with a with, where a bomb blew a hole in it." Side of that plane, yes. that'll be okay. Um, and uncredited guy too. I, I'm sure. I'm sure all of his great grandkids and there's there's grandpa when he was he was in the airport movie. See him? Look at him holding that ruler. But a nice a nice little scene. And uh, and then the music, you know, all this great. This is Alfred Newman's last movie, and this this music when it comes up with a theme and and they're just you know they're just watching all this going by. It really it it, it kind of ties it up with a bow, and uh, and then it, it goes from that from that music as we're watching uh, uh, Bert and Gene walk off uh, off stage. We watch the uh, the capper for the or the button for Mr. Finlater and Helen Hayes. Uh, driving up with you know her getting her getting her whatever the reverse of a comeuppance is she's getting her reward for being such a good stowaway. All right, let's talk about that little cart that he drives. Was that ever? Re- I don't ever remember seeing a cart that small. I mean, you see them now in the airports. They hide, you know, they hold, you know, like a dozen people or eight people or something like that, and they go beep 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 through the airports. I've never seen one a one that only carries one person. Yeah, it looks like a modified golf cart. I mean, it's like a three wheeler. I've never. Yeah, it, it doesn't even look like the kind of thing that uh, you know you drive around on a cart on a set. Th- even those hold like six people. I mean, that, that's more like a there'd be like two rows at least. But I guess it uh, it serves the purposes of this movie. It holds exactly well, one that, passenger. Yeah, that's that's the super VIP transport. Yeah, you know, it's just made for one person. There, you know, more, she's more, sitting there looking so regal. Yeah, and they got around I, as we were discussing uh, yet the, the past two days with uh, with John Finlater. 
they got along together smashingly up in uh, Minnesota, waiting for the waiting for the snow to fall, and they would go to the movies every day. So they were fast friends. And this, of course, is in the this is being shot at uh, at Universal that that beautiful uh, Gate Thirty Three set that we've been admiring for most of the movie. Fantastic set and gigantic. Um, you know, when you think about what's what's in this one scene, it, here's the, the quarter that's going off to the left, but then the other direction is where the uh, the buffet is, where um, where Lloyd Nolan and uh, Burt Lancaster were having dinner, uh, waiting for Gene Seberg to get back. So that's another set built into this whole thing here. Dan, when you work on on different uh, projects, what's the biggest set that you've had built? Do you do you have one that's particularly uh, elaborate for that you can re- recall for for being a, you know extremely elaborate. It's, I would imagine that you use it for for many rounds of like many episodes of a show. But is, have you had extremely elaborate sets? Uh, well, short answer, yes. Um, the the generally you build a set because you want control of where you're shooting, or it doesn't exist that somebody will rent it to you for as long a period of time as you can use it. Or you, in a in the case of television, you're going to use it again and again and again and again. We built a set for uh, for Luke Cage uh, for uh, for the Marvel show that's on Netflix. Uh, that was the the club owned by uh, the the gangster bad guy played by uh, Mahershala Ali, and that was a very very large set with two levels and supported by steel and decorated with you know gorgeous uh, you know period lighting fixtures and furniture and a lot of stuff that was custom made. And, you know, that cost a lot of money. And, you know, the excuse was we're going to shoot there two days every episode and, you know, we're going to live there. The other issue that you know I brought up in defense of building that set rather than going to a, and renting a, a real club was that no real club would give you the access you needed on any given regular schedule uh, because clubs have other things going on in them. Like, you know, they use them for parties, events, and just for being a club. And schedules change all the time in television and in features that you just need to own the thing for as long as you're going to use it, you know, just so you have the ability to go back there when you need to. This this airport set was gorgeous, although I'm willing to bet it's not quite as large as it looks on, on camera. Yeah, they're probably shooting it with really low... <laughs> Low numbered uh, lenses, I would think this is, but it's very expansive. I mean, it's a, it, it's an amazing cheat and not only the, the gateway, the corridor area, but it also moves down to the, uh, the jetway that they put in. I mean, I'm sure that's a bit of forced perspective, but then the entire 707, which according to John was a, uh, John Finlater said that it was a 707 that they had just chopped in two so they could have a wild, a wild wall and move it back and, and film in different areas. Well, well, they probably got one from the junkyard. You know, like Lost did, and yeah, yeah. just they got pieces of it. Or there's uh, there's actually a company in uh, in California and in New York called Aero Mockups, and they will <laughs> rent you however much of a piece of whatever plane you want and deliver it to you. They're very very expensive to rent. That's but, a niche uh, company. Wow. It is a it is a niche company. They'll they'll rent you fully functional cockpits for a, pretty much any airplane, first class sections, two rows of seats, or you know, better part of a whole airplane. Wow. But if you're if you're going to do a whole movie, you're probably going to build it yourself from scratch, uh, because to rent it from them would cost more than you could just build it yourself. Yeah, just knock one for out. a long period over a long period of time. Uh, are these mostly still being done in house? I know that like Paramount has a huge carpentry shop and things like that, but I was just wondering if if you're still shooting if you shoot in L.A., are you going to be mostly using the 
the studio facilities, or would you be still bringing in other people to build it for you? Well, every studio facility, be it in L.A. or anywhere, would have a carpentry shop and a scene dock, and it's usually not on the stage. It's usually nearby the stage so that you can do noisy work while they're shooting on a stage doing quiet work. Uh, and then you just you prefab all the all the pieces and roll it into a set and build it a few days before you're going to shoot it. When you're shooting, I'm thinking like on a pilot after you've shot the pilot. I guess there is there is there like a reserve time when you're holding it to see if the pilot gets picked up that you can just like keep all your all your scenery together so that in case in case it does go to production that you you don't have to recreate it after the pilot's done or do you just let it go and rebuild? How how, how does that typically work? Well, well, in the case of television, uh, we, we try not to build big sets for pilots because they do cost a lot of money. Half a million, a million, a million and a half is not unusual uh, for a set budget for uh, a first season show. So like in the case of, say, you know, ER, they shot the pilot of ER in a real hospital, which was easy to you know buy and control for the two, three weeks they were filming that pilot. But then, of course, you couldn't do that in, in series. It, hospitals being used as a hospital, uh, just like an airport's being used in an airport. So they built a set for ER or sets, you know, ER rooms, waiting rooms, the whole nine yards. They built that all at Warner Brothers when the series was picked up to, uh, to series, when the pilot was picked up to series. Uh, this still comes across as a rather realistic look. I mean, I, I know that, you know, now with, with HD and 4K and things like that, you have to concern yourself with the way that set design looks as a, you know, I mean, it has to look extremely realistic. And this was on a screen, but I'm really impressed by the, the amount of detail in all of this stuff, just the set filling, the props, even stuff like, gosh, there's time traveling going on with, uh, you know, there's the Chicago phone books that are all stacked up next to the phone, next to the phone booth, which I had completely forgot about. But, uh, you know, the amount of detail in, in prop stocking, uh, in this is is fantastic, and uh, even down to you know things like Rolodexes on the uh, uh, you know all, all the little widgets and and, and mm. gadgets to to fill in there. Uh, set set the set decorators they just love the finer points and the little details. Whether you're going to see them or not, they they try to make uh, you know living environments you know down to any kind of smudge or matchbook or ashtray or yeah yeah it's it's, it's really extraordinary my mother uh uh is a librarian in uh, tarrytown new york and uh she got a phone call from uh a pa on uh i believe it was mad men asking if she could look up what the uh weather was for a certain date in like 1967 uh for ossining new york um that's huh. how Seriously, they take that stuff. Uh, just, yeah. Uh, sure, but who? But, but it's one thing to say, all right, that matchbook for that restaurant was closed by then. Some other things to go. Who's going to remember what the weather was? You know, fifty years. Well, ago? I guess I guess they wanted her to look it up in the local paper, which which she did. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just, I found that like kind of very interesting that somebody would care enough to do that. Everybody in the industry cares enough. The thing that drives most things in the industry is time. Awesome. Do you have time to look it up? Do you have time to recreate that thing that existed back then? Can you get everybody to agree on what this thing looks like and deliver it before you need to shoot it? I think the amount of detail that's in this movie is kind of what draws me to it. There's so many little things you can watch. I mean, we've been <laughs> watching it a minute at a time since August. Every scene has so much in it. There's so, you know, it's just wall to wall, uh, a link to the past. Uh, I think that's what that's what makes part of it the rewatchability. I mean that and the plot and the and the actors and uh, the production. But the production values of this of this film are so great. Just 
you know, watching all these little things that they actually even give the background characters little bits to do that you can track and they still, you know, have stuff going on. And, it, you know, you can you can follow a particular character through the entire movie, like like Mr. Rathbone, where we're following him, uh, not, get, you know, having to pay two bucks the to get on the bus and the nuts guy. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, missing his oxygen mask and stuff like that. So you can follow his whole little path. You can watch the movie again, follow him, or you can watch uh, Whit Bissell being the uh, the oboe player and watching how he deals with, you know, having a stowaway sitting down next to him and getting all righteous when uh, <laughs> when Jacqueline Bissett smacks Helen Hayes across the mouth. And, you know, it's just you can follow him. And I mean, I think it's kind of uh, you every time you rewatch this movie, you can just have a different focus and, and enjoy the movie all over again from a different point of view. I, I think that's that's where my that's where my personal uh, link to this movie is, is that the, the rewatchability of, of the of all the different characters. I'm some people it's it's just you know seeing the aircraft or or getting stuck in the melodrama and stuff but i think it's just watching the watching how the storylines develop for each of the characters you know kind of wondering what's going to happen to them next i i you know this whole this whole thing that we saw at the beginning of the minute where uh uh vern is going off with gwen and and mrs demarest is kind of like um i'm right here hello so we don't know what's going to happen with them how's you know, it, are they going to adopt the kid? Is is Dino going to run away with Jacqueline Bissett? Or it doesn't tie everything up. You know, the, it, there's so many loose ends that you just don't know what's going to happen next on these things. But uh, I think again, that that just kind of feeds into the rewatchability. I'm surprised. I, one of the things that I, I'm surprised. At, I mean, I guess it's just the march of time, but I'm just surprised at how many people have never seen this film. And it's such a it's such a great film. It's on. It, they have it on TCM about every every three months or so. Uh, I try to try to get other people to watch it, and when, when they've seen it, they like it after they've seen it. But uh, but Dan, you've you've been a longtime fan of of Airport, from what I understand. Oh, it's a classic. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it is one of those movies you can watch over and over again. And it makes airplanes. And, and I have. Funnier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it like Mark said, it does make airplane funnier because you suddenly realize, yeah, this is this is the kind of thing they were sending up. It, it, but it. it I don't know if you've seen Zero Hour, but Zero Hour doesn't have it, it doesn't have the realism. Even though they're both melodramas, I feel this is kind of a realistic melodrama. You can kind of deal with uh, the emotions that are being expressed are all honest. The you know stuff like watching uh, Mel trying to deal with he can't delegate. He doesn't have any ability to tell other people go do your job and I'll you know report back to me if you have a problem. But you're you've been hired to do this because you're an expert. So go fix it. And uh, he doesn't get to that point until, uh, well, the last minute of the movie, which we have, we haven't even arrived at yet. He's just, uh, these, these last couple of seconds as we're watching, uh, oh, yeah, he, get, he, he learns to delegate so he can go have, uh, pancakes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, he also used, he also used a term, which I don't know that I've ever heard anywhere else ever that he talks about having a career in navigation. Yeah. I think, I think he meant to say aviation. I <laughs> think, <laughs> it just but it, it was came, navigation he said yeah, wasn't it? yeah it was yeah yeah and i think he was trying he was trying to say uh aviation or he was trying to say it, it's that weird lancaster accent that nobody else in the world seems to have he's, he's kind of boston but not quite and but yeah he says nav navigate navigation and he, he, yeah he, he doesn't quite know what he's saying but i guess and i think that the editor the sound editors missed it it just kind of went through but this I wonder, what, I wonder what the original script said i think probably aviation and he might have read it yeah. as navigation as he was going through or, or and nobody yeah. just stopped him i just keep seeing who's gonna st who's gonna stop and correct Bert lancaster yeah yeah i uh, one other little, the, the tiniest little bit of minutia in this particular minute at uh, second fifty-two, 
there's a husband and wife and two little kids, and I keep thinking that's got to be, you know, the producer's kids that wanted to be in the movie for a second, so they put some parkas on them and walk them through as, as background. But it just seems it there seems to be an awful lot of walk-on parts in this movie. I mean, a lot of you know crowd scenes and people standing around and, and just being slightly off center and staring off in the distance. I, I have a feeling that most of the Minneapolis uh, the city council and all that are probably featured, uh, <laughs> featured players in the corners. Does that, does that come up frequently when you're in productions that you have to kind of like insert somebody in a, in a, in a movie so that they'll, they'll let you go use something or it's, it's never become a, a quid pro quo. Like you have to do this. Otherwise, you know, you won't get something you need. Uh, generally, people understand that, uh, you know, all jobs on a set, uh, including the extras, are controlled by union regulations. Yeah. And, you know, you generally can't just put just anybody in a picture uh, mm-hmm. under most circumstances, although uh, we do. And, you know, my kids have been in, you know, <laughs> any number of different projects. Uh, when uh, when I worked at AMC, the famously the, the governor of Virginia was a huge fan of one of the shows we were shooting in Virginia, and they actually wrote a part for him. He has a, has a speaking role wow. in full costume, um, mm-hmm. and he was fabulous. <laughs> wow, he's, he's and, on and, his way. And, he's on his and way to a segment. They, <laughs> and and guess what? They uh, they uh, they renewed the uh, the production tax incentive in Virginia the next year. Go Lo figure. and behold! Wow, it's a miracle. <laughs> I am going to. I I know we're getting down to the very end of of this movie. I didn't think I was going to miss it, but I think I'm going to miss this movie after after. I mean, I may watch it again sometime. No, not not this year. But, uh, there's just so much going on in this film, and I can't, the only way I can think of that that's similar to this is uh, I've, I've worked on films in the past where I've been an editor, and you you kind of fall in love with particular scenes and stuff, and you keep running them through the you uh, scrub back and forth and go, I like that scene and this scene. And that's what this is. This whole trip has been with, uh, with our podcast. It's kind of just, you scrub through an entire movie and you find every last little, little bit of things that you like in it. I don't know. I, I mean, it's going to be a while before Mark and I get back to another, <laughs> another movie. I think Mark needs, oh, Mark yeah. needs a rest. Mark needs, a, Mark, Mark needs some downtime on this, but uh, yeah. it's, it's been fun listening. And I'm, it's, Thanks so much for listening to our show. I, I, and, yeah, and, we do. We really appreciate that. Yeah, and not, no, not, it's a it's a it's a great show. Yeah, it's uh, you know, and not and not just to to you, Dan, but the people that are you know on treadmills or or listening to this on their way to work or, or listening to the way home from work. Uh, we really appreciate. We've had a lot of feedback on the show, and uh, pretty much all positive. Uh, we didn't know when we first started out whether it was going to work or not, and uh, and apparently it did. So people, and there are a lot of people who said that they've. They had never seen the movie before, and uh, and they've actually gone out and watched it and found it to be a good film. Uh, the thing that I cannot get over, though, is there are people who listen to our show who have heard every minute of this movie but have never seen the movie. That's just – I can't imagine listening to a show about a movie you've never seen. That that But that, God bless you for all listening. I think, I think it's uh, it's been a great time uh, with that. Um, and this, technically, this is, as I said at the beginning, this is our, uh, this is our final, our final recording. And, uh, we will be back with other movies. Uh, we're looking at Airplane. We're also looking at Airport 75. And, and there's a couple of other things coming up later this year. Uh, I'll be working on the Rocketeer Minute beginning in April. And, uh, we're also going to have the, uh, the Die Hard Minute coming up in June. So check all those out. There are, uh, there are a bunch of movies that you can find out at, uh, moviesbyminutes.com. Uh, which is run by uh, the two guys that started 
this whole movies by minutes thing. Uh, Pete the Retailer and Alex Robinson of the Star Wars Minute. And I'd like to thank them for coming up with this format that uh, Mark and I could enjoy all, all the way through on here. But with with that, I you know, Dan, thanks so much for being on our show uh, for our, our final one. We do have, as much as you are an excellent an excellent guest, we have a, a, a couple of fascinating guests coming up uh, to continue this uh, stretch that we're having uh, on Monday and Tuesday. So uh, please come back and check us out on Monday and Tuesday for our finales. Uh, and we are, we are also available, as always, on social media at Twitter, Airport Minute, uh, on Facebook, the Airport Airport Minute and uh, the Airport Minute uh, Commanders Club, where you can get in and, and talk back with us. And as always, we'll still have airportminute.com, where you can buy a copy of the movie or some cool swag like the uh, These Nuts Are Stale Guys uh, coffee mugs and, and all kinds of all things Patroni. Are oh, watch for to... our Ada Quonset coffee yeah, mug. Yeah, Ada Quonset's coming up uh, shortly. So please, please check that. Mark's personal favorite. Definitely a, a nice finale to the show. Uh, so please join us here on Monday as we wrap up this wonderful movie uh, here on the Airport Minute. So until next week, uh, have a great weekend and good day. Bye-bye. Nice going, sweetheart. Remind me to send a thank you note to Mr. Bowling.